Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dr. Robert Moran is an addictionologist in West Palm Beach, Florida, and he graciously returns to talk with us today about some of the newer drugs hitting the streets. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. One of the newer drugs is known as Spice, or K2. I get mixed opinions from the kids I've spoken to about it, whether they see it as dangerous or not. What is Spice, and, and where did it come from? Spice is one of the newer designer drugs available now on the market. It actually was started as an herbal substance, primarily as an incense, and therefore perfectly legal right now, but laced with substances that are very similar to the active ingredient in marijuana. These substances are called synthetic cannabinoids, and they have many similar effects that marijuana does on the brain in that the synthetic cannabinoids actually stimulate the same protein receptors in the brain that the active ingredient of marijuana does, and people experience it in many different ways. What intrigues me is that it still is a cannabinoid. Why isn't it also illegal? Although it is a cannabinoid, it is different from the active ingredient in marijuana, which is THC, or tetrahydrocannabinol. By changing a few molecules, one is able to maintain the effects of the THC or even maximize certain effects of THC, but at the same time be classified as a different molecule and therefore legal. Up until recently, all of these synthetic cannabinoids were not illegal, but over the past few years, a number of states have made a number of the synthetic cannabinoids illegal troubling part is that the manufacturers are always staying ahead of the game a few steps and constantly changing the cannabinoids molecular structure in such a way that they're able to continue to produce what are still legal synthetic cannabinoids. What's the effect of spice? It is absolutely dangerous for many people who use it. The effects are certainly unpredictable for the user. Many individuals think that because it can be bought legally online or even in the local convenience store, that it's not likely to create any kinds of problems. But in fact, we have seen many serious problems, such as the development of seizures, psychosis, anxiety, paranoia. There are reports now in the scientific literature of sudden death, probably due to cardiac problems as a result of acute spice ingestion. Unfortunately, it's seen as a more benign, if you will, drug than marijuana, but it's simply because there's not enough public awareness about the dangers of its use. And might it be because it's a synthetic cannabinoid that it's a pure, stronger cannabinoid than the THC, which varies so much based on where it's grown, the quality of the, of the plant and so on? Might that be a variable? This is a good point. We know that THC, in fact, is considered to be what's called a partial agonist at the cannabinoid receptor in the brain. And so it doesn't fully stimulate the receptor, and therefore the effects of THC are not as great as they could be if that receptor were fully stimulated. These synthetic cannabinoids, on the other hand, are full agonists. So they are stimulating that cannabinoid receptor in the brain to a full extent. The thinking is that that probably is what underlies the difference in effect. The potency of the synthetic cannabinoids, that is the spice, is also clearly much greater from a clinical perspective. We see that marijuana users experience mild to moderate euphoria, mild sedation, a calming effect, an anti-anxiety effect, maybe some mild cognitive effect, but the effects of 
spice are generally much greater, much stronger, much more powerful than any of those just described with marijuana. Is it addicting in, a, in the typical sense of the word? We don't have enough research yet to show what the effects on the brain are with compulsive use. And so if we're defining addiction as changes in those pathways that subserve motivation and reward and mood regulation and behavioral inhibition, then I don't think we really know that it has brought about those kinds of changes. But certainly from a clinical perspective, what we see are the behaviors that are probably an expression of those beginning changes in the brain. That is, we see a loss of control over behavior, a preoccupation with obtaining drugs, an obsession with using it. We have seen some patients who become so focused upon obtaining and using spice that they have lost all context of everything else that's going on in their life, and they have used despite negative consequences, including being arrested for some of their behaviors, having all kinds of legal problems, losing their families, losing their jobs. From a behavioral perspective, the effect of the spice, I think, would meet criteria for addiction that is similar to what we see with opiate addiction and alcohol addiction and, and other drug addiction. There's been a lot of talk of late about marijuana being associated with an increased risk of psychoses in adolescence. That's with the THC and a partial agonist. This is a full agonist. If I'm, I'm going to say this very simplistically, it's a stronger version of marijuana. It's likely that that may be the underlying mechanism. Unfortunately, there's not yet enough research, so we don't know what particular population is being drawn to its use, for example. So maybe those have some type of predisposition or vulnerability to developing a psychotic episode, may be more likely to use spice than another drug and therefore develop a psychotic episode. On the other hand, what we often see is that the people who present using spice have started with marijuana almost exclusively and then have been introduced to spice. Some of these people have developed psychotic episodes on marijuana prior to being introduced to spice and then certainly inevitably develop psychotic episodes when they use spice. Are the types of psychoses that you're seeing, do they need hospitalization? Do they need antipsychotic medications as, uh, to, to treat it? It's certainly very difficult upon presentation. If the patient or individual doesn't volunteer that he or she has used spice, then the etiology of the clinical picture, and that is, you know, what's causing the present psychotic episode can be very unclear if spice has been used and consider that as one potential cause. But yes, in a few cases, in our experience, we've had to hospitalize people for psychotic episodes that have turned out to be most likely caused by the use of spice. And the psychoses are indistinguishable from those caused by schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Most drug screens, the routine drug screens, do not test for spice. They'll test for regular THC, but not for spice. So that can be the lack of a piece of data that might help explain the behavioral change. Yes, a very important piece of data that we don't have, certainly in the emergency situation. The common rapid urine screen done in the office or in the emergency room will test typically for 12 different substances, THC being one of them. But if spice is present, it will not create a positive result because it is not being tested in that cup. Fortunately, we do now have the ability to send the urine specimen to various laboratories to have them tested specifically for synthetic cannabinoids. This has only developed over the last number of months. The laboratory that we use, for example, can test 26 different synthetic cannabinoids that we were not able to test just a year ago. 
do there seem to be residuals from this? Is there a relapse rate? Is it like somebody who's been on cocaine and you get them clean or heroin, you get them clean, they're very vulnerable to slipping back? Yes, certainly we see a great deal of that. What's interesting is there seems to be a progression from, from using marijuana to using spice. We haven't yet seen that people are more likely to resume smoking marijuana. And we don't really understand why that is, but it may be perhaps it's easier to obtain. I can walk down the street from my treatment center, for example, walk into the convenience store and buy as much as I want. It's scary. It is very scary. We have a 15-year-old in our program right now who has come to us from a different part of the state. She herself has said that she is afraid to return home because she has a convenience store right next door to her home, and she knows that she would not be able to resist the temptation of walking right next door and using. It makes me shudder inside to think that there isn't an instantaneous banning of the substance I agree with you. There is a lot that has been done. As I said, there are a number of the synthetic cannabinoids which have been made illegal, but the manufacturers are constantly staying ahead of the game and changing the molecule into molecules that are able to stimulate that cannabinoid receptor, but not similar enough to be banned. It reminds me of the days when I was in New York City and the drug dealers were always one step ahead of the cops in trying to figure out a way to market things and move things through. It's, it doesn't speak well to our society at all. Yes, exactly. Spice is not the only new substance on the streets. There's something called Kratom or Ketom. I've seen it pronounced both ways. This too is legal in the United States, but let, let's spend a little time talking about that because that is also a very serious concern for us from a mental health status. What is Kratom? Kratom is the street name or common name for a substance that is derived from the leaf of a tree which grows naturally in Southeast Asia. The Latin name for the tree is Mitragena speciosa, and the psychoactive substance in the leaf is mitragenine. This substance is found to have some stimulant properties at low doses and some opioid-like properties at higher doses. It has been made illegal in certain countries in Southeast Asia, such as Thailand and Malaysia, and there are other countries in which it has been made illegal. But in the United States, sadly enough, it is still a legal drug. Does it have the same effects as narcotics? Are we basically looking at a different formulation of a narcotic when it gets down to what it does to a person's life? Yes, we have seen that, in fact. We have had a number of patients admitted to our treatment facility whose drug of choice is Kratom, and upon cessation of the Kratom, a full opiate withdrawal syndrome has required medical treatment. Does it afterwards require the things such as a methadone maintenance program or Suboxone, something like that? What happens afterwards? With regard to the cases we have treated, we have found it necessary to actually treat with buprenorphine, a partial agonist at the opiate receptor, and that this has been found to help prevent any further withdrawal and to resolve any craving for kratom. In a couple of the cases, when we attempted to taper the buprenorphine, the craving for kratom specifically became overwhelming. And so these patients have been maintained on buprenorphine. It sounds as bad as intravenous heroin. For some people, it has had similar effects. 
when people take narcotics, one of the big problems that they often have is that it's very easy to overdose and they have respiratory depression or other medical problems. Are we seeing any deaths? Because you know what bothers me is if you go on the web and you look at so many of the websites, they paint it as rather harmless. Yes, yes, I have seen that myself. Certainly when I first came across the substance and that was when our first patient was admitted telling us that he had been using it, I was totally unaware of it and I had to teach myself since there really is very little reported in the medical literature. We didn't have any experience with it, and certainly I went to the European literature to learn what was available and what their experience was. I had to use that to help guide our interventions with these patients. We have now two items that can be basically purchased on the Internet or at a gas station that are very similar to the ill effects of very strong marijuana and the ill effects of narcotics, but they're legal. I really am having a hard time putting this together in my head. I must tell you, it scares me. Yes. In addition to that, in our local neighborhood here in Florida, the kratom is made available at a what's called a kava bar right downtown where people can actually go into a cafe-type place and order drinks made with another substance altogether called kava, which has sedating properties and anti-anxiety properties, and they can request that kratom be added to the kava drink. And I'm told by some of my patients that there's a long line out the door of the bar on a daily basis. So without realizing it, there are many people who are developing at least a physiologic dependence to kratom, and perhaps in some of those people it'll actually develop into an addiction. I have read that there are estimates that kratom is used on a daily basis by as many as 30 million Americans. That's astonishing. What frightens me so much about this whole trend is that we can talk to a very large number of people and they'll say, I've used it over and over again and I'm fine. And I know people who've used it and they're fine. So don't tell me that it's so dangerous. All you doctors do is make things worse than they really are. How would you address that argument? I'd say that the, the vast majority of people who are prescribed a pain medicine like Vicodin or codeine don't develop addiction. It's used properly. However, there are those who are probably born with a vulnerability to developing addiction to a substance. And when they become exposed to something like a pain pill or an opiate, they may develop the type of euphoria that provides positive reinforcement, and this may lead to abuse and dependence and eventually addiction. I'd say that there are probably those people who may be able to use something like Kratom once in a while and not develop dependence and addiction, since that's true of all drugs. But it doesn't undermine the dangerousness, since, first of all, people are taking substances when they have not been educated as to what the possible risks may be. I don't think that many of these people who are going into this Kratom bar each day are realizing that they're probably physiologically dependent. They're probably thinking that they like the feeling they get when they're drinking the drink, much as someone enjoys having a cup of coffee in the morning, and they simply think that they are making a choice to go back every day to get it. They're just unaware, and that's just unfair to the American people. The potential for problems, as you've outlined earlier, of ending up in the hospitals or even overdosing are genuinely there. It's not a benign substance. 
Not at all. Dr. Robert Moran is an addictionologist in West Palm Beach, Florida, and he's taken us on a quick tour of two new items that are out there widely used, Spice and Kratom, and I hope that before people choose to use them, that they listen to us or become properly educated about the substance that they are putting in their body, or shall I say, hopefully not putting in their body. Dr. Moran, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.